Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you here on this Lord's Day, and what a privilege it is for us to be able to gather and praise Him, pray to Him, hear His word read, hear His word proclaimed. Let's not take that for granted. That is a privilege and a joy that we have. You can go ahead and be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 24 this morning. As you're turning there, just a, a couple of things that, that I want to mention. First, a, a note from Pastor Nate. And of course, we look forward to having him back with us this next Sunday. So continue to pray for him and we praise God for, for his healing. But uh, the message from Pastor Nate and the church council, uh, it says, Pastor Nate, and the church council with input from the ministry staff have discussed the transition back to two services. At this point, unless circumstances change, we anticipate moving back to two services on February 18th, the week after Community Sunday. We'll be providing more details about the transition over the next several weeks. If you have questions or thoughts about that transition, please talk to Pastor Nate our ministry staff, or any of our church council members. And we want to encourage you to be present and active each week as we gather to worship Jesus. And so we pray that the Lord would continue to multiply us and, and grow us uh, spiritually, but also uh, in number in this next year. Let that be our prayer. Uh, the second thing I want to mention is as we move into the new year and into Focus Week on January 7th of Focus Week, the first Sunday of the new year, of course, we'll have a time of uh, praying together that evening at uh, five o'clock. And just like we did last year, as we take time to pray, we'll pray for various things, but we also want to pray for you. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. Sometime over the next couple of weeks, take the opportunity to write down any prayer requests that you have. Now, here's the thing. We want to pray for anybody and everybody, but for this particular time, we want to pray for you or pray for others in the church. So let's try to keep the prayer requests limited in that regard. Um, you can send those prayer requests to me. You see my email address there on the screen. You can call Kelly Caldwell in the church office and uh, she'll, she'll take those as well. Or you could take advantage of those blue little cards there in the pew rack in front of you. And on one side, it says, how may we pray for you? And you can write down your prayer request on those. You can put them in the giving boxes and we'll get those and we would love to pray for you. Uh, keep in mind though, if you're gonna put a prayer request for someone else on there, get their permission because we're going to uh, type those up and have those available on, uh, on the evening that we have our prayer service. So keep that in mind. That was a great time last year and I know uh, you'll wanna be uh, preparing for that as well. All right? So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, last chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, we're going we're gonna to finish up 2 Samuel basically today. Pastor Nate at the end of the year will, will come in and wrap up this series. But we'll be looking at God's mercy in life's mess this morning. Now, I don't know where you fall on that, that spectrum of messy to OCD, you know what I mean? I don't know where you fall on that spectrum. I'll just kind of tell you this morning, I'm not on the messy side. 
I like to think I'm not OCD, but I'm not on the messy side, all right? But I was reading an article recently, and it was talking about people who have messy desks. Is that any of you? Messy tables, messy desks. Uh, in, this, in this article, it was commenting on some research from the University of Minnesota, and it was testing how well students came up with new ideas when working in orderly versus disorderly work areas. Now, I know how I want that to turn out, but it didn't quite go that way. The research revealed a connection between a messy desk and productivity and even genius. So you messy people, this one's for you. Now, to be honest, I don't really like that because clutter just kind of messes with me and I don't feel right about it. But on the other hand, I'm not Albert Einstein and this is what his desk looked like. Yeah, maybe that looks like some of your desks. It was, it was Einstein who once said, if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, of what then is an empty desk a sign? Okay. I still don't like messes, but I suppose I, I can appreciate the productivity that comes from people with messes uh, in, in their lives there. You know, messy desks are one thing, though. And if you have a messy room, okay, whatever, we can deal with that. But what about messy lives? What if our lives are a mess? What do, what do we do? Well, I'll guarantee you one thing here at the beginning of our time together. We won't be spiritually productive people and we won't, be God, we won't live God-honoring lives if our lives are a spiritual mess. It can't happen. It won't happen. By the time we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David and <clears throat> all of Israel, they seem to be in some kind of a, a spiritual mess. And the sin that they're experiencing seems to be begetting more sin. It seems to be multiplying isn't that often how it works? We sometimes experience that in our own lives. Let's see, let's see this in the context here of Scripture. I want to read just the first 10 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 24 here at the beginning. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the number a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from, uh, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre, to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. 
And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Father, we gather in the name of Jesus this morning, and we gather around your word as the authority of our lives, your word that instructs us and guides us, And so we ask this morning that by the power of your spirit at work in our midst today, that you would teach us, grow us, and help us to rightly apply your word for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you can be seated. Oh, how sin can make messes of our lives. Thankfully, though, as we sang earlier, although our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And I want us to see this kind of playing out in four biblical truths here in the passage. The first is, well, where we have to start, our sins are many. Our sins are many. You notice back in verse one, the text began with these words. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Well, that's nothing new if you've been following along. That's not new information to us. What we don't know the exact reason For the Lord's anger in chapter 24, I mean, are we talking about one of the numerous sins of King David? Are we talking about some of the numerous sins of the people of Israel? The the text doesn't say. I suppose we could probably come up with a pretty good list by now, couldn't we? But we are told that in his anger, the Lord incited David to take a census. We'll see in a moment that this was a sinful act. He incites David to take this census, or if we want to get complicated, in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So who was it? Did the Lord do this? Was this the work of Satan? Well, I think we can maybe put both of these together, and perhaps if you have an ESV study Bible, some of you use that, uh, it has a, a, good, a helpful little note in there. It puts it this way. It says, we should think of Satan's malice as God's means of carrying out his will, in this instance. Now, that might bother us a little bit when we think about God using Satan or allowing Satan to, to do things like this. It could bother us, but here's the thing. In a universe where God is absolutely sovereign, and that's our universe, by the way, each and every day, there can be no situation where God isn't acting or allowing whatever happens. If God is sovereign, then there's no situation where Satan can do anything apart from him. All things are ultimately coming back to him. We recall Job Chapter two, verse three, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The point of this passage though isn't to figure out who ultimately incited David. The point of these verses is to show the multiplying sinfulness of these people. 
the multiplying sinfulness of even King David and ultimately leading up to this census that is gonna cause some, some further trouble in the land. Now, the question before us is, well, why is this census sinful? The problem is we're not explicitly told. The author of 2 Samuel didn't feel like it was important to give us the full reason for that. But here's the thing. We may be able to come to some understanding of the problem here. In light of the fact that they counted only the valiant men who drew the sword, commentator David Samora suggests the census showed either a lack of trust in God to supply their needs or a dependence on human rather than divine force. Either way, this is a sinful act. Either way, this is, this is problematic and it's going to, to wreak sinful havoc in their lives. I mean, listen, in that parallel in, in first chapter, or excuse me, first Chronicles chapter 21, it even says the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And if you know anything about Joab, as we've seen over the past year is, he's kind of a wild card. You never know what to expect from him. If Joab thinks this is a bad idea, you should probably rethink it, but they don't, and King David wins out. But you know what? In the end, and we saw this in verse 10, even David, after he gets the results of the census, he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Whatever the reason for this being a sinful act, David knows it. He knows it in his heart. Church, sin here is doing what sin does, when left unchecked, it wreaks havoc in our lives. It runs wild in our lives. The sin clouds our discernment so that we can't make wise decisions and we ultimately end up doing sinfully foolish things. You ever experienced that? Just me? We know that, don't we? We see the effects of sin. They, they multiply and they cause further problem in our lives. The nasty thing about sin is even after we receive God's free gift of salvation, it still plagues us at times, doesn't it? Sin still nags us, or at least the temptation to sin. It was Puritan theologian John Owen who famously quipped, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's one or the other. Something has to die. You see, sin is like that, that annoying weed out there in, in your yard that, that you, you, you have to deal with, right? If you ignore it, it grows bigger and bigger. If you ignore that weed, it's gonna send its roots down deeper and it becomes stronger and stronger. I have one of those such weeds in my yard. I can't seem to get rid of it, but I just have to keep cutting it back every so often. If you ignore that weed of sin in your life, it will quickly spread and it will quickly multiply. We have to uproot it. It has to be killed. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Listen, church, we've got to take sin seriously because our God takes sin seriously. How serious does he take it? Well, we see secondly here in the text, holy God must punish sin. He has to deal with it. He has to punish sin. By verse 10, we see that, that King David now understands the gravity of his sin, but now he needs to come to terms with the consequences of his sin. I wanna go ahead and, and continue reading in verse 11 there in 2 Samuel 24 and read through verse 17 as we continue the story. 
It says, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to, to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the, Jebus, the Jebusite. And David said to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. We have an ongoing sin problem here. We have ongoing trouble going on in the land. Recall in verse one, it said the Lord is again angry with Israel. Now when I read that, you know what, you know what I'm thinking when I read that, that the Lord is again angry with Israel? The meaning is he was angry with Israel's earlier sin, whatever that was. He's angry with the current sins of Israel And he's also angry with this census that David has undertaken. In other words, there's a whole lot of sin going on by a whole lot of people. And what we see is God isn't pleased with sin and he simply cannot tolerate sin. So the Lord, through his prophet Gad, that's what a seer is here in the text, through the prophet Gad, he gives David three options for punishment. He says, you can have three years of famine, You can have three months of fleeing from your enemies or you can have three days of pestilence. Now, none of these options are pleasant, are they? They're not supposed to be. That's what happens with our sin. They're not supposed to be pleasant, but David chooses the final option. He chooses the three days of pestilence and the result of the three days of pestilence is the death of 70,000 men of Israel. Sin has consequences, doesn't it? Do you find this excessive though when you read that? Does it like bother you? David's census? Yeah, I know the people are kind of sinful, but, but does the punishment really fit the crime here? I mean, aren't we just talking about some slip-ups? Maybe just a mere lapse in judgment by King David and some of the people of Israel? I mean, isn't that what sin really is after all? Of course not. Just ask King David. He knows in verse 10, I've sinned greatly, I've done foolishly. And then he adds there in verse 17, as we read a moment ago, behold, I have done wickedly. These aren't slip-ups. 
These aren't lapses in judgment. This is rebellion. This is wickedness against a holy God. You see, David and Israel have sinfully rebelled against an infinitely holy God. And listen, if the punishment will truly fit the crime in this instance, we shouldn't be reading just about the death of 70,000 individuals. We should be reading the obituaries of several million people. Why, Why is that? Well, because God is of purer eyes than to see evil, and he cannot look at wrong, Habakkuk 1 tells us. And of course, we know, ultimately, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, we see Satan enticing. He entices Adam and Eve to rebel against God, just like he does with David here. He entices them to rebel against God, Just like the way he often tries to entice us, doesn't he? To to forget about our obedience to God. To forget about the fact that God is holy and demands holiness of us. But since the beginning, though he entices us to sin, Satan never shows you the consequences of sin. Never shows you the consequences. Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. What are the consequences of sin? Bottom line is, death is the righteous judgment of sin. Again, we should be reading the obituary of millions in this particular story. And anything short of that Anything short of total annihilation, anything short of absolute judgment and wrath of God because he is holy and sin is that despicable, anything short of that, church, is mercy. It's mercy, and we see that also here in the passage. We see, thirdly, the Lord's mercy is great. The Lord's mercy is great. You know, I I don't think children have to get very old in life before they figure out which one of their parents tends to be more lenient. Which one of their parents tends to be the most merciful when they do something wrong? I mean, they figure that out pretty quick. And maybe when you were a child, you learned fairly quickly to go confess to dad before mom found out. Or, or maybe it was the opposite of that. Maybe you learned to dread mom's words, just wait till your father gets home. You knew, you knew which one you wanted to go to, which one you wanted to find out first, right? Because why? We crave mercy, don't we? Even though deep down we know we don't deserve it, but we crave mercy and we want to figure out where can I find mercy? Where can I find the most mercy in my life? Church, David is no different David also desires mercy and he wants it for himself and he wants it for his people. And David learned quickly where to find mercy. You see, multiple times here in the book of 2 Samuel, we've seen David proclaim his his hope for mercy and grace. When, when, uh, when he's, he's praying to God as his child with Bathsheba is dying, in chapter 12, verse 22, he says, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? Oh, he knows this is the only place he'll find it. 
When Shimei cursed David back in chapter 16, in verse 12, he says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me for the good or with good for his cursing today. Don't entrust yourself to man, but maybe in the Lord, I'll find mercy. Then when he's given three choices for God's punishment here in chapter 24, he says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Church, that's why he chooses the pestilence. This is the option that that most allows him to fall into God's hands and rest on his mercy rather than falling into the hands of man. And of course, you know, the Lord was merciful, really, if we think about it. In verse 16, it says, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. I don't think the full three days passed here. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. In other words, this could have been a lot worse. This could have gone a lot further. Friends, we dare not presume upon the mercy of the Lord, but on the other hand, we dare not hope in anything but the mercy and the grace of our Lord. You see, the lost person today doesn't need greater effort in trying to be good and trying to to atone for their own sins. The lost person needs the greater mercy found only in in faith through Jesus Christ. The Christian today who's caught up in a pattern of sinfulness in their lives, they don't need greater guilt in their life. They need need to throw themselves against the greater mercy of Christ for forgiveness. What we need is not something we can do on our own. What we need is the mercy and grace of the Lord. You see, most of us today are, are like David and we're well aware, you know, like David and like Israel and well, like everyone else around us that our sins, they are many, aren't they? Our sins are many. But friends, I promise you, his mercy is more. And so do like David did. Fall on his great mercy. Our merciful Savior has yet to reject genuine repentance and faith. And I don't just suspect he's gonna start anytime soon. Why can we trust his mercy? Well, let's look fourthly here in the text. Atonement is our only hope. Atonement is our only hope. So God shows his mercy in verse 16. He relents. He doesn't, he doesn't give the, the, the full amount of his judgment and wrath that he could have. We see his mercy, but that's not the end of the story. And in fact, it can't be. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't be right. It can't be the end of the story. So look in, in verse 18 as we finish out this chapter. 2 Samuel 24, verse 18. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said, 
to buy the threshing floor uh, by the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for, for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Well, we certainly see God's mercy is great indeed, but what about the sin of the people? God cannot merely relent. What about the sin? What, what do we do about the sin? Well, commentator Dale Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis says, the situation was not resolved at the end of verse 16. There was wrath, uh, excuse me, their wrath was stayed, but not satisfied. The scourge ceases in verse 16, But the wrath behind the scourge must not merely be curtailed or on hold, but must be dealt with or theologically propitiated. What about that sin? It has to be dealt with. And this is why David builds an altar to the Lord. Now we might wonder, well, why there? Why go buy this threshing floor? Why, why go buy this property from Arana? What, what, what's the significance there? Well, it's, there's, there's no accident here. This is no mere coincidence. This particular piece of property is Mount Moriah. This is Moriah where Abraham, many years before, built an altar and was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac until... God provided that substitute ram. Friends, Moriah here is where David will build his altar to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings to deal with the sin of the people. In church, Moriah is where Solomon will build the temple of the Lord on this particular threshing floor. He'll build the temple of the Lord with an altar for sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. You see, this is the place. This is the, that place where atonement had been made for sin for centuries. Because in the words of Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God relented, but that wasn't the end of the story. There had to be the shedding of blood. You see, every unblemished animal that was sacrificed there at Mount Moriah over the years, it was merely pointing us forward. It was just pointing us ahead until just and divine wrath is finally satisfied at that same place at Moriah in the blood shed by the spotless lamb of God, Jesus. Ephesians 1 says, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Church, atonement is our only hope. The atonement of God is our only hope. We don't hope in any good works that we might attempt on our, on our own. 
No, we hope in Christ. We hope in the Christ who entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Atonement is our only hope today. My question for us is, is your hope in Christ alone? Is your hope ultimately in what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection? The blood of bulls and goats has never taken away sin. Our best efforts have never taken away our sin. Our best pleadings before the Lord has never taken away sin. It's the blood of Christ. Is your hope in him? Is your hope in him for atonement this morning? Oh, it's true, our sins, they are many, and they deserve, they deserve the judgment of God. But the mercy of the Lord is also great, in fact, greater than our sin. And he shows that to us in sending Christ to make atonement for us. Back in the 18th century, it was the preacher John Newton. In a sermon that he preached back then, they included, the sermon included these words, He says, are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope? That poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you. But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts no one out that comes to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Friends, there's mercy in the messes of our life. And it doesn't matter how big that mess has ballooned to in your life. There's mercy in the mess of our lives. Place your hope, place your your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. How do we do that? We turn from our sin. We die to self. We trust that Jesus died in our place for our sin. And he rose again to give us eternal life. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope of why Jesus came so that we would quit trying to earn favor with God. We would quit trying to make ourselves right with God apart from the hope that we have in Christ. There may be some here today who they've trusted Jesus. They've placed their faith and their ultimate hope in Jesus. But maybe they need to confess some lingering sin, trusting that God continues to be merciful and he continues to forgive. Maybe that's you today. Maybe others today just need someone to pray with them. We're gonna be at the front here in just a moment as we have a time of response and During this time, I want to encourage you. This is an opportunity for each one of us to respond to the Lord. I don't know know where each one of you are today. Uh, I barely know where my own heart is half the time. But each of us, every time we hear the word of God, we must respond. What will we do? What will we do? If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's your response today. Don't leave here without the hope of Christ in your life. If, if you've, if, again, you've been struggling with some, some sin in your life, don't continue to, to keep that to yourself and just carry that burden with you. 
Let a brother or sister pray with you. There are godly men and women around you, I'm quite certain, who would love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you at the front. Whatever your situation is, whatever your condition today, we have hope in Christ. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is great. His mercy is always greater, amen? Let's pray together. Oh, our good and gracious Father, we're thankful for your mercy. God, without your mercy, without your grace, this life would be utterly hopeless. But Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would do a miraculous work of your spirit. That for the one here today who has yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus, that this would be the day that they know the hope of Christ. That this would be the day that they know what their eternity looks like. Father, for others of us, I pray that we would not drift in our sin, that we would not continue to carry that baggage, but that we would lay it before you, trusting that you are a merciful and forgiving God. Father, have your way in our midst this morning. Do a great work of your transformation in us. Lord, we pray all of this in the matchless, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand?